Dear sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Well, we have another interesting text, right, from Jesus this morning. Another fire being kindled and a blaze being lit. All three lessons talk about what does it mean to be a disciple. We have the, we have the transition story out of the book of Deuteronomy. This is part what you heard from uh, Mr. Kedick as he was reading uh, is one of the, well, it is the last sermon from Moses to the people of God. They have now finished their wandering. They're about to cross the River Jordan. Uh, God has already informed Moses that that will not be for him. And a new leader has been chosen, and his name is Joshua. And this is the last words of wisdom from Moses to the people. Today I put in front of you life and death. I put in front of you the law and sinfulness. You need to choose wisely. You need to choose appropriately. You need to choose how you follow Yahweh, how you fill out, live out, work out God's law will either bring life or bring death. Hard words, not a fun sermon. It wasn't a pat on the back, see you later kind of deal. Inviting a people to make a decision of how they would behave and believe. Then we have the story of this amazing story, the shortest book in the entire Bible. It's one chapter long, Philemon. Obviously someone that Paul cares about deeply, who has a house church. He's wealthy enough to have uh, a courtyard and buildings and so on and so forth, and obviously has slaves. And we don't have all the details. There's all these big pieces that are missing in this story. But somehow in Paul's captivity, this runaway slave has come into his orbit. And by this time in Paul's captivity, he is not in, quote, unquote, a prison. It would have been more like house arrest because he was a Roman citizen. He had promised not to leave. And so all the things that he would need for sustenance and so on are brought to him. And so this slave who has run away by the name of Onesimus has come to him. But do you get what's happening in this story? Paul has written this letter. He's, he's telling us, I've written this with my own hand. I did not dictate it. And now he's handed it to the slave, and he's sending the slave home to, the, to his owner. And this is in a world, if you were a runaway slave and if you were male, almost for sure you would be executed upon capture. If your owner reacquired you, the normal sentence was death, and it was immediate. You just simply could not tolerate people that were slaves running away. And so here Paul has crafted this letter, hoping against hope that there will be even time for the letter to be read. But that's not guaranteed. And here is now this brother in Christ, this slave being sent back to the owner. And of course, we simply don't know how the story turns out. There's not the second letter of Philemon. We don't hear a letter back from him to Paul. And then we get to the gospel. Another really hard reading. 
As I look out at this congregation and as I've served you now for a little over nine months, I've come to know that there's all kinds of multiple generations in this family. It's truly one of the gifts of First Lutheran that you have a number of three and four generation families that, that worship here. But according to Jesus, this should not be happening. You should all hate one another. What does it mean for Jesus to say that you cannot be my disciple unless you what? Hate your father and mother, hate your wife, hate your children, hate your brothers and sisters. Really? And then he turns and looks to his disciples again and he says, you can't be my disciple if you're not willing to pick up your cross and follow me. And this is in a world where the cross is not a metaphor. It's not a beautiful piece of jewelry that people hung around their neck. Anywhere there was a Roman garrison in Israel in the time of Jesus, guess what you would see there? You would see either filled crosses or naked crosses waiting for their next victim. They were part and parcel of the landscape. Everywhere that you went, when you walked into a Roman-controlled town, people would have been crucified and left there. When you came into Jerusalem by any avenue, there would have been crucifixion sites outside the city gates. You can still see the holes in the ground where the crosses were embedded. Jesus is not speaking metaphorically. He's talking about real crosses carried by real people. And if you're not willing to do that, then how can you follow me? How can you be my disciple? And furthermore, it's even more complicated than that because in, in Luke's chapter 14, we have these amazing stories laid right next to this one of this most gracious and hospitable rabbi named Jesus. Right before this text, he tells the story of a king who throws a banquet and all the first people that he invites are far too busy. One has a new wife, one has a new property, one has a building being put up. And there simply isn't time to come to the banquet. But the king wants to have a full banquet hall. And so who gets the invitation? The blind, the lame, all those that are not deserving. The ones who should not be invited. If we go back to Moses' letter, Moses is very explicit about not associating with those kind of people. That if, in fact, you are following Yahweh to be righteous, you need to separate yourself from those folks. And yet here's Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. A banquet hall filled with the blind, the lame, those who have the marks of sinfulness those who are clearly, obviously, on their very face, are not righteous. What does it mean for the kingdom of God to be laid one hand over against the other? Of hearing that all are invited, but that not very many will be able to follow. And it's clear in his depiction of discipleship, it's not being done so that we might be worthy of the gift that is Jesus Christ. No, discipleship, it seems to me, is the response to the gift. So what does it mean to hate father and mother? Well, again, it's 
helpful to know a little bit about the Semitic language because in the Semitic language, the word that we would translate as hate does not necessarily carry, in fact, it doesn't carry the emotion of it. When I think about hating someone, for me, that word implies that I, I would even be willing to do physical harm against you, that I dislike you that much if I say that I hate you. I'm willing to hurt you. But that's not what the word means in the Semitic language. It means to separate, it means to cut and sever, which does give us a little bit of moment of grace, I think, except when we apply it to the culture in the first century, it's even more difficult for them. People are walking away after this sermon, I guarantee you, when they heard this. The crowds got noticeably smaller. Because in the first century, within the Greek, Roman, and Jewish cultures, your identity was with your family. You did not, for the most part, think of yourself as an individual. You thought of yourself as a son or a daughter, a brother or sister, husband or wife, grandson or granddaughter of a family. And for Jesus to say, you have to cut that relationship if you want to follow me. And this will not be the only time that Jesus says this in the Gospel of Luke. Because he will say later on, and actually has said before this, who is my family? Those who do the will of God. Those people who follow me. Jesus is making a claim that there can be only one at the center, and that will be him. He's making a claim that my gift to you is to create a new community. We talk about it in our prayers, right, and in our, our pieces of liturgy. We talk about this community being the body of Christ, that our first and foremost identity is not being the son of Bruce and Isla, but it's being a follower of Jesus Christ. And then what does it mean for us to pick up our cross? What does that look like? There have been times where I've thought about that as it's, well, if I have some kind of physical limitation or if I just have mean people in my congregation, which, of course, never happened, by the way. And it was those people, that was my cross. But I really have come to realize that neither of those is my cross to bear. My cross is really following Jesus Christ and being in relationship with him. And what, how do I live that out? And some parts have gotten to be easy at this point in my life. Pray every day, read scripture, study it, be in dialogue with our Lord and Savior, have moments throughout my day where I try to pay attention to what God might be speaking to me. But then there gets to be the little bit more difficult ones those pesky ones, where Jesus says, yes, I forgive your sins, but I would really like it, David, if you would forgive the sins of those that have sinned against you. And still, even at my age now, I'm like, eh, no, I don't think so. I really like it when I have something against you, right? When you've done something mean to me, I, why would I want to forgive you and give that up? I have my little garden of woe that I can go plant the new plant. You know, all those terrible things that you've done to me and I can go and tend it every day, sometimes more than once a day. 
And Jesus wants me to forgive you for what you've done? And then I've read it multiple times, but he says, you know, even more than once. And I'm like, twice? No, then we have that great text, 70 times seven. And as my wife says at that point, so now we have to do math in the church? To follow Jesus Christ, he wants to be at the center. He gives us a gift. Your sins are forgiven. I bring you new life. And then there's this invitation to come and follow me, to take those gifts, to pour them into ourselves and share them out into the community. It can be really hard work. It can be really hard work. It can be scary at times. It can be daunting at times. It gets us out of our comfort zone. It pushes us into places where we never thought we would be. I knew when I was a boy that I could not go to Africa because it was just too scary. I'd listened to all the stories of the missionaries that had come back that would come and preach, and I know that I didn't want to go there because it was just so scary. Something terrible would happen. And yet 30 years later when I stepped off the plane into West Africa, I remember just laughing out loud because here was still Christ at the center inviting me into a future that I could not have imagined. To follow Jesus Christ, him crucified, raised from the dead, means that the future is held by him and that in him and through him and with him, we can trust that, one, he'll never let us go and that we can, in fact, step into a future controlled by him. So God's blessings to each of you as you follow Jesus Christ, as you are his disciples this week, as you struggle with what that means in your world that you live in. So God's blessings as you follow Jesus. Amen.